came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no one other, than him, no one other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Now, there are two somewhat, uh, somewhat distinct incidents here that I, I just read. Um, two questions, really. One that's asked to Jesus, and then one that's asked by Jesus. And while they happened at the same, they would have happened at the same general time, we're, we're talking about the period of Jesus' life between when he entered the city of Jerusalem for the very last and, and final time, what we refer to now as Palm Sunday, and, and his arrest on Thursday, what we now would refer to as Maundy Thursday. It all is, all these, all these interactions are occurring sort of within that time frame, and it would have, the, both of these incidents would have occurred there. They might not have happened at the exact same, exact same instant, though. But nonetheless, Mark puts them together for a reason, I think, There's, because he wants us to, to see how they sort of explain each other. And there are two things that I think he wants us to see. He wants us to see, first, that there's a commandment that you need, but you can't keep. And secondly, there is a Savior you want, but you can't see. A commandment you need, but you can't keep. And a Savior you want, but you can't see. Now, first, a commandment that you can't keep. This past Wednesday night, we started, um, we started our, our seven-week spring edition of Faith Explored. Now, this is the, the 12th time we've done Faith Explored, and, and, and every week we've done this uh, from the very beginning. What we always do the very first week is we say, if you, if you could ask God one question and you knew it would be answered, what would it be? And, and, the, and this past week, just like all the other weeks before, the, the 20 or 25 people that were, were there, they, they each contributed their, their question, and we collected them, and we'll sort them, and we'll do our best over the next six weeks to make sure that we address them. And we do that because we believe that God, through the Bible, speaks to the deepest questions of life, the questions that we all, we all have. But imagine, imagine now that you were in the temple courts here with, with Jesus, and you're actually there when Jesus is doing Q&A live. He's there. You're there. People are asking him questions, and there's no, there's no softballs here. These are all, they're all questions. They're all hard curves, right? They, they all have a spin to them, and he's hitting them, and that's what, that's what this guy, verse 28, that's what this guy, this teacher of the law is doing. He's there watching Jesus do Q&A, and he's impressed. 
Now, this is a teacher of the law. Now, you remind me again. Okay, what's, what's a teacher of the law? A teacher of the law was a specific subset of the Jewish religious leaders who's, who, who were the theological scholars. Right? Sometimes they're called the, the scribes. And usually they were also a part of the, of the Pharisees. That would be the more conservative sect of, of Judaism at the time. And the Pharisees took the religious law very, very seriously. And within that group, the the teachers of the law, the scribes, they were the experts. They were the ones that you consulted when you had a question about the law. So it says something when you have a teacher of the law asking someone else a question about the law. Because it would have been an admission to a certain degree that they needed advice. They needed help about what the law was teaching or how to interpret it or how to communicate it. And of course, their job was to have those answers. And so now, in many cases, when the teachers of the law came to Jesus, this isn't the first time a teacher of the law has addressed a question to Jesus, but in most cases, wherever that else is recorded, they come to him and they're trying to trick him. They're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to trap him. But actually, not here. I don't think so. Right? This guy was a witness to the trick questions. He had just seen that happening. But there's every reason to think, both in the way that he asks his question and the way Jesus responds, in the way that he responds to Jesus' response, that, that he's not trying to be tricky, that his question is actually sincere. And not only, not only is it sincere, it's actually a pretty good question. Right? He asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which one is most important? See, by this point in Jewish history, the, 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 the teachers had categorized, they had subcategorized the, the law that had originally been given by God to Moses into more than 600 individual statutes. Right? And, they, and they formed the basis then for how someone was supposed to live, right? You want to know how to live? Here you go, 600 rules, right? That's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? Right? And so if you grant this teacher the best of intentions, that the teacher is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, can you help me out? I'm asked this question all the time. People come to me and they're saying, okay, which, what do I do? How do I know what God wants me to do? How do I follow the law? What's, and I don't have time to review all 600 questions with or 600 laws with them. What should I tell them? Now, before we look at the, the answer that Jesus gives, I want you to see the practicality of this question for, for you. Because this is essentially the same, the big question of purpose that everyone in their, in their life asks, right? What am I supposed to do? What does God want me to do? That was, that's one of the main functions of the, of the law of God for the Israelites. It defined for them what God wanted them to do with their life. And you don't have to be a first century Israelite to be asking that kind of question. Everybody asks that question at every stage of life. Everybody. Think about it, right? Whether you're, whether you're a little child right, or, or, or a, young, a young child, and you're asking, like, I wonder, should I be a firefighter? Should I be a baseball player? Should I be a rock star? Should I be a princess? What should I be? What does God want me to do? Right? Or, or, you're, or you're a teenager and you're trying to figure out, like, okay, what, 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 sh- what kind of college should I go to? Should I go to college? What, what would it look like? What should I major in? Right? Or you're, you're a young adult and you're trying to figure out what hashtag adulting really means, right? What, and like, what, is, what do real responsibilities really, really entail? Right? Or maybe you've hit kind of the midlife, midlife crisis. What does God want me to do? You're looking back at your 20s and you're saying, what, what happened? Why didn't everything that I thought was going to happen materialize the way that I thought that it would? Right? Or maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're re- recently retired and you're realizing that playing golf, collecting seashells, and waiting for the mail to come doesn't look as, it's just not as appealing as it looked in the Ameriprise brochure. Okay. Or maybe, maybe, may, may, maybe you're in your later years, and most of your life is in your, in your memories, and even those memories sometimes seems harder and harder to, to hold on to. What does God want me to do? Everybody wonders. 
And what Jesus does here is he provides a framework for answering that question. Everybody, everybody needs this command. The most important thing he says is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there it is. Jesus says it's actually very simple. This is what you're supposed to do. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Right? Easy. Eh. Take the first part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And to emphasize how, how important, how central this is, he includes the preface to it from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what they refer to as the Shema. Right? And it was said twice a day by all of the pious Jews as the, as the beginning of their, of their prayers. And so Jesus is saying, this is where you start. And the phrase, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that, like, he's not saying that this means you, like, you divide up your existence into four separate spheres. What, he's, it, what it's meant to convey is it's everything. It's all-encompassing. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, everything. It means you give God everything. You recognize his authority over every single aspect of your life. He gets all the honor. He gets all the respect. He gets all the credit. He gets to call the shots. And so this is where, you, this is where some people kind of step back and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds awfully egotistical on God's part, doesn't it? Either awfully egotistical or awfully insecure. Are you saying that God is so insecure that he needs us to be constantly doting on him? Right? Praising him? doing exactly what he says, that sounds awfully needy, right? A, a, this, this being just walking around saying, will you please love me? Right? Is that what it sounds like? But think about, it for, think about it for a minute. What if God really is the ultimate being in the entire universe? Right? And, and what, if there, what if it were really true that God was the one who made you, the one who designed you? Well, if those things were true, which is exactly what the Bible claims, if God really is the ultimate being in the universe, then he would be worthy, wouldn't he, of our full devotion, of our full attention, worthy of our love, worthy of a command like this. He would deserve it. And if God really were the one who made you, the one who designed you, then that would mean that he would know exactly what is best for you. And only he would be the one who knew that because he's the designer. In other words, he would know how you work best. And he's telling us, that we work best, that we're most satisfied when we love him with all of our lives. And then, if you think about it in that way, the command isn't egotistical at all. It's still a command. But if, the, but if it's a command to do what's, what's best for us according to the way that he designed us, that, that if it's the only way that our lives will actually truly work, then this command is actually the most loving thing that he could possibly command for us to do. Right, so that's the first part. Then, of course, there's the second part of it. Love God, first part, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and, and it's right back in the middle of the details of, of, of all of the law, the law that had been given to Moses. All, the, all kinds of laws and, and regulations and, are in Leviticus chapter 19, right, about how to behave, about how to treat people, about how to offer sacrifices. And in the midst of that, in the midst of Leviticus 19, it says in 1918, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> All right, now what does that mean? Love your neighbor as, as yourself. Who is my neighbor? And some of you, of course, remember, probably remember, Jesus told a story about this. 
right? It's in Luke's account. It's in, in, in Luke's account of Jesus' life in, in chapter 10. Jesus is actually reviewing this same command. He's reviewing it with someone. And, and, that, and that guy, that, that person asks, okay, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells what we now refer to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I won't tell you the story, but essentially what Jesus says is this. He says, okay, your neighbor. I want you to imagine someone of a different race, a different religion, who's hurt and incapable of helping himself, that person. That's, how I wa- that's who I want you to sacrifice your time and your money to care for. In other words, Jesus takes the ball and he throws it way down the field. He raises the bar really high. You want to love someone? Love an Iraqi Muslim bleeding by the side of the road who can't help themselves. Right? Where helping them would be absolute, of absolutely no personal benefit to you, as if a situation like that were purely hypothetical. Now you're political. Hold on. Okay, wait a minute. Now you're getting political. No, actually, actually no, I'm not, actually. Because, because that, statement, that statement doesn't necessarily force you to pick a political policy, does it? I mean, Jesus is teaching. We didn't read it, but I told you about it. Jesus is teaching earlier in Mark chapter 12 that there's all kinds of things that a, that a government, that a civil government has to take into, into account when they're, when they're choosing particular policies. Right? And that's, that's what he's talking about with Caesar and taxes, that civil governments have a responsibility to look at things like, like public safety and what's most effective and efficient way to allocate resources, what's the best way to actually love people. But the command, the overall command to love, that's not negotiable. Right? And that's not political. In fact, that's kind of the point. That's how radical this commandment of Jesus is here. Right? Because think about this. One of the things the teacher of the law might have expected Jesus to do was just pick one of the Ten Commandments, right? Or just pick a couple. Just go to the Ten Commandments. All right, there's 600, but we, but we have the Ten. Jesus, why don't you go to the Ten and just pick, pick me a few to sort of focus on? And if Jesus had picked, think about this, if he had picked, right, honor your father and mother and don't commit adultery, right, then all the conservatives would say, see, I told you, it's all about family values and sexual morality. Look, right? Or if Jesus had picked, look, don't steal, don't bear false witness, which is really all about justice and how to treat it. Then, then, the, then the liberals will always say, look, see, I told you, it's all about justice. Right? But Jesus doesn't pick a commandment. Right? He summarizes them, and he summarizes it in such a way that challenges, has to challenge both the liberals and the conservatives. Because he says, look, you want to de- define the law. You want to understand the law? You, you, you can't understand it without understanding love. You have to love. You can't have obedience, which I know you conservatives like. You can't have obedience without love. You can't have it, right? Love is how you define obedience. You have to love. And all the liberals say, yay, love. I told you it was all about love. Can we just get back to love, please? But, but there's an issue. And this is also what Jesus is saying here. By going back to the commandments, he's saying, but wait a minute. The only way you can know what love is, is by the law. In other words, you can't just jump up and down and say, yay, just give me love, because you don't know what that means unless someone has defined what is loving. What's your standard? And that's exactly what the law of God does. And so you see the issue. You can't understand the law without love, and you can't understand love without the law. They're inextricably mixed. So here's your commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And the teacher of the law, look back at, verse, look at, look at verses 32 and 33. The teacher of the law, he answers pretty well. He see, it seems like he's, like he's getting it. He sort, of, he sort of says it back to Jesus, and Jesus tells him that he's, that he's getting it. It says, Mark says, Jesus says he thinks he answered wisely. And so Jesus tells him, you're not far 
from the kingdom of God, which in a sense is a compliment. You're on the right track. But it's also a warning because being close and being there are two very different things, aren't they? One could say that the Atlanta Falcons were close to the kingdom of football. They were near, right? Because they lost the Super Bowl in overtime. It was the very last minute they were, they were near. But see, the smallest possible difference is the greatest possible difference when you're talking about two things that can't be true at the same time, two things that can't overlap. See, you either are the Super Bowl champion or you're not. The Atlanta Falcons are not. Right? And you're either, you're either in the kingdom of God or you're not. This teacher is not far, but he's not there. Now, what's missing? What's missing? Because the conversation sort of ends here. And I think that's why Mark then relates this account right after, because I think, I think it has everything to do with what Mark relates next. See, we have the commandment that you need, but you can't keep. Now, we see the Savior that you want, but you can't see. And we'll be quicker here, but I want you to see why Mark relates this seemingly obscure reference that Jesus makes to Psalm 110. Why does he do this? How does this actually solve, help us solve the problem of having a commandment we need but we can't keep? Let me read it. Let me read verses 35 to 37 again. All right, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Right, now, do, do you, we have Jesus now ask, asking the question, right? And he asks, what do the teachers of the law mean when they say that the Messiah is the son of David? And this is indeed what the teachers of the law would have, would have taught, the, the, that the promised Messiah, the Christ, uh, the Christ of Israel would be a son of David. Now, that term, the son of David, didn't actually come into use until probably the first century B.C., within 100 years of what's, of what's happening here. But that concept is all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. All the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, others, they all spoke of David as, uh, as the Messiah, as coming from the physical lineage of David, a physical descendant. And, of course, the Messiah, the rescuer, was who everyone here that Jesus is talking to desperately wanted to come. Remember, the whole Passover that they're in Jerusalem to celebrate, the whole Passover was occurring under the watchful eye of the Roman legions. Right? Pontius Pilate was there in Jerusalem, not, that's, not because that's where he normally was, but because he wanted to make sure that the celebration didn't get out of hand. What an insult to the Jewish people. The Passover was a celebration of the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt, a celebration of freedom. But, but right in front of them, even as they celebrate it, is a reminder that they are no longer free. They are subject to a foreign power. And so they want, in their own conception of what Messiah would mean, they want a rescuer. They want the son of David to come. And we want a rescuer too. Right now, perhaps we aren't looking for a, a descendant of some ancient Judean king to come and rescue us from a Roman emperor. But each of us is under the weight of something. Right? There's something in our life that is, that, is, that is weighing on us, oppressing us even, maybe crushing us. And if you can't think of something specific, then just go back to the, the commandment that we just talked about a minute ago. Love the Lord your God with all your whole soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and let that weigh on you. And you realize, and you say, wait a minute, I think I need someone to rescue me. See, we want it too. But the problem for the people of Israel, and the problem for for many of us, of course, is that they don't see the Savior. Or they don't see him, even though he's standing right in front of them. 
So Jesus asks them the question because Psalm 110 is talking about the Messiah, and yet it seems to say something that's really puzzling. Because it says that David considers the coming Messiah, whom we've already established will be David's son, that this coming Messiah will be David's Lord. And so Jesus asks, how can that be? How can the Messiah be David's son, that is his physical descendant, and David's Lord, that is David's ruler, at the same time? How can he be both? Of course, the question is rhetorical, right? Which means that Jesus doesn't answer it, but the very asking of it is making the point that he's trying to make. The, the, the Messiah is David's physical descendant and David's, David's transcendent Lord because they are the same person. And that person, Jesus means to imply, is standing right in front of them, if only they could see. Now, Mark reports, the end of verse 37, that the crowd was delighted. But there's no indication that they, that they any more fully understood what was, what was completely happening than the teacher of the law did. They were on the right track, but, but there's no, more, no indication that they completely understood it either, what Jesus was saying, that he was, in fact, the Messiah who would be their, who, who would be their rescuer. And, and you have to wonder a little bit, why not? Right? Could, couldn't Jesus have made, couldn't he have been better in his teaching? Well, I, he certainly could have been more explicit, but he couldn't have done it any better. Right? And, and I think that's because, because even if he had been clear, and he could have been, I mean, let's be honest, he could have said, it's just not recorded here, but he could have said, hey, I, I am the Messiah. It's me. I'm David's son, and I'm the sovereign Lord of the universe. I'm both, don't you see? But even if he had been clearer, everything before that we, we've, we've ever learned about Jesus, so they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have believed him. That's not what happened before. Jesus has made claims to being this Messiah, to being God before. Like in Mark chapter 2, when he, when he heals the paralyzed man and forgives him of his sins. And what happens then? What do the teachers of the law say? They, they say he's blaspheming. They say he's a blasphemer. How dare you claim to be God? Right? And, they, and they, 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 try to, they try to kill him. See, and so more teaching, even clearer teaching, is not what's needed. What's needed is for Jesus to finish his mission. They're never going to understand unless he continues to do what, he, what he's in Jerusalem to do. See, because as good a teacher as Jesus is, he can't save us by his teaching. He can only save us by his dying. And that's why he's in Jerusalem. And it's a good thing that he can't save us by his teaching, isn't it? Right? For example, let's take David. Right? Since Jesus is the one who brings him up, what about David? Right? King of Israel, great leader, follower of God, knew the commandments, the one whose descendant would, would be the Messiah. And yet, what about David? Right? How did he do with the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Right? Let's just take the neighbor thing. Who was David's neighbor? Well, David's neighbor was a guy by the name of Uriah, <clears throat> who was away fighting in the royal army when David saw his wife and decided that he wanted Uriah's wife. And so he took her, and he had Uriah killed, and then he lied to cover it up. That's four commandments, if you're counting just real easy without even trying. Right? And I, I, of course, the whole point, look, I'm, not, I'm not, not trying, it's not, the point is not to, to, pick on, to pick on David. The point is that God gives David a commandment that he needs, but he can't keep. He breaks it. Now, if Jesus comes along, David's descendant, and can only save David by his teaching, then David has a problem. Because as clear and as good as, as Jesus' teaching might be, if Jesus is only David's physical descendant, in other words, only a human teacher, right, then the best that he can do is save David by more teaching. I could just give you more teaching. That's the only thing I can do. 
But David's already gotten the commandment, the, the, the greatest commandment, and he couldn't keep it. And if that's all Jesus is, the only thing, if that's all Jesus can do, the only thing he can do is offer more teaching, then the only thing he can do is essentially reiterate the great commandment. Let me just say it again. The, the commandment that we all need but we can't keep, then David is doomed, and so are we. Right? Do you see the point? Unless David's son is also David's Lord, who not only teaches but also dies, then David's failure and our failure to keep the greatest commandment dooms him, and it dooms us. But if Jesus is more, if he's in Jerusalem, not just, not just to teach, but to die, then there's hope. Because now, finally, someone is here who can actually keep the greatest commandment. Right? And there's no place where that's more evident than on the cross. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's exactly what Jesus did. When he voluntarily went to his death, it was the ultimate act of deference to his heavenly Father. Right? He completely submitted himself to the will of his Father. Love your neighbor as yourself? That's what Jesus did, and more. When he went to his death, he loved his helpless neighbors. That's me and you. He loved us much more than himself because his death, the one that he didn't deserve, would stand in the place of our death, the one that we did. You see, David's son and David's Lord, the Messiah, keeps the commandment that we couldn't keep to become the Savior that we so desperately need. Now, just two points of application as we close. First, let me go back to the, the statement that I made about, about purpose. It, for, because no matter where you are, whatever stage of life you're in, where, where, wherever you are, that question what am I supposed to do, is a critical question to ask. And I'm not pretending, whether, whether, whether you're a child or you're an older adult, I'm not pretending that there's just kind of one blanket answer. There's specifics of your life that, are, that, that require further discussion, that require further thinking. What does that actually look like for me? But, but, but what, what this is saying is it starts here. This is the only place to start. What does God want me to do? He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he wants you to express that love in the way that you love other people. Now, but secondly, though, let me ask you to consider that, that phrase that Jesus, that, that, that statement Jesus makes to the, the teacher of the law. And you are, you, are not, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And ask you, are you near? Where, where, where are you? You know, it's, it's common, as I was reading different commentaries and, 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 and different sermons and stuff that have been preached on this passage. It's common to refer to John Wesley when you're talking about this passage. And that John Wesley, the, the founder of the Methodist movement. And that's because this passage and that, that verse specifically had a huge impact on, on John Wesley. John Wesley actually was very similar in many ways to this teacher of the law. He, he grew up with, in, an, in an amazing religious upbringing, right? Religious, religious pedigree, grew up, was tremendously well-educated, dual dual professorship at Oxford, became a, a, a priest in the Anglican church. He was extremely pious, did all the things that, you know, that, that some, if you know anything about him that you kind of associate, he did all those kind of things before he really knew or understood anything about the saving power of Jesus. And he came to realize that on a failed missions trip that he took to the Americas when he went to Georgia, and he failed miserably, and he realized, wait a minute, I, I don't know anything about this Jesus. 
And he came back, and when he came back, he opened up his Bible one day, and he, and he looked at this verse, and it said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And he realized, he said, this is a tremendous encouragement. I'm on the right track. I'm feeling the right, I'm feeling the right things. I'm feeling uneasy because this is how God wants. I'm, not, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm getting close. And yet it was also a tremendous warning because he wasn't there. For all of the background he had, he wasn't, he wasn't there. And it was later that, later that day when he finally, finally submitted himself to, to Jesus and became a Christian. And he, did, and, he, and he did far more after that than he had ever, ever done before. But, but what about you? Are you near? Because you, you can sit in church, you can sit in church your, your entire life and be no different than the teacher of the law. Near, you're, you're, you're near, but you're not there. And so have you. Have you, have you put your, your faith and your trust in in Jesus. Now, for many of us who would say yes to that question, you, you, can still, you can still use that to challenge yourself because many times, and this is true of me, functionally, that's where, that's where I am. I'm very near, and I work here. <laughs> but, where's, but where's my heart? Am I there? They're two, very, they're two different things. And let me just add, if, 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 if on the other hand, you're, 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 just, you're just exploring, right? Someone, someone invited you today. You're not sure what this, what this all means. Let me, let, me, let me ask you to use that, that verse as an encouragement. Right? You're near. What, what you heard this morning is, is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news about what Jesus has done for you. And so I encourage you to, to keep asking, to keep exploring, and asking God to open your eyes so that you can see, so that you can see the Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you speak perfectly clearly to us. Perfectly. In your teaching, yes, now that we have in front of us the entire revealed and written word of God. But Lord, you speak to us most clearly in what you have done. In sending Jesus to die for us a death that we deserve to give us a life that we don't. And so, God, I pray that you would bring us, bring us near and bring us in. Help us to see the Savior. Help us to live lives that love you and love others, not because it is a commandment that we must keep in order to earn your favor, but a commandment that we get to keep because you have kept it for us. And so we praise you for that, and we praise you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.